Everybody see the photograph that came out in the last couple weeks? Like the photograph. You should know what I mean, right? I don't know how this is possible. My, my small brain doesn't fathom things like this. How can you take a picture of a black hole? <laughs> right? But researchers just recently unveiled the first direct visual evidence of a supermassive black hole and its shadow. What's amazing is this black hole resides 55 million light years from Earth. That's some serious zoom, hey? <laughs> I don't get it. Like, I, I don't know how they could do that. Uh, but in this last decade, there have been a lot of stunning discoveries like that. Like, water has been discovered on Mars recently, or as it's going to be called soon, Elon Musk land, you know? <laughs> The discovery of dark matter in the universe, this is fresh as well. Um, with help from biomechanics and engineering, scientists have created robotic body parts, limbs. Scientists have um, discovered how to regenerate human organs through stem cells for those with failing hearts, lungs, kidneys. In fact, I even read recently about they're, they're developing um, 3D printing where they believe that they'll actually be able to 3D print an organ that will physically work in your body as a replacement if yours fails. What? There have been a number now of, of successful face transplants for those with birth defects or disfigurements that have taken place. A few years back, an expedition reached the deepest known point of the ocean's seabed, seven miles down. So when you're up in a plane and the pilot comes on and says, you're at a cruising altitude of 30,000 feet, this, this submarine went 35,000 feet down to the deepest seabed that is known. And in this kind of deep, deep seabed Research communities of previously unknown species have been discovered like crazy. Technological advancement has brought us the head wedgie, everybody. <laughs> there is a marketing team that got fired, hey? <laughs> like, it's official. Like, this is it. We, we live in the future. Like, forget the hoverboards, like, the head wedgie, everybody. There's actually an app. You probably need this app. You don't want to admit it, but you probably need this app. It's called Walking Text because it doesn't make sense to us that maybe I shouldn't text while walking. And so we have a workaround we've come up with, which is walking text, which the, the screen of your phone is, is the use of your camera. So you can see a little bit ahead of you and you can still text. Like, let's not stop <laughs> and text and then walk again. No, let's keep walking and have a way that we can keep walking and texting. And this is actually necessary. Security footage in a mall uh, captured a woman walking and texting in the mall and she walked right into the mall fountain. <laughs> and the weird part about this is she's not the only one who did it. That happened in the States. Across the world, in China, in a mall, a surveillance camera captured a woman walking and texting who fell into a fountain. <laughs> like, isn't it amazing? I love this front row. Thank you so much. This is the best. Uh, like, I just, I, isn't it incredible, the technology? Like, the technology that, that, that has, is here. But, but I want you to listen, because this is where we're going to go this morning. 
Despite all the technological, scientific advancement, there are three universal problems that the human race has not been able to solve for itself. Sin, suffering, and death. And what's going to govern our time here this morning is a little verse found in 1 Peter. Yes, Peter. The, the, if you know a little bit about the Peter in the Bible, he's the, the fumbling, bumbling disciple of Jesus who God absolutely transforms, who becomes a mighty man of God, who becomes the apostle Peter. And here's what he writes in his first letter to suffering Christians. He says, verse 3, according to his great mercy, God's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope because of Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. Now, I said a little phrase in there, a little term that's kind of a lightning rod term, born again. Familiar with that? Born again. Right? And so some of you are like, man, I don't want that. Right? You're reading this verse to me about we've been born again to a living hope. I don't want to be born again. Uh, and sometimes the perception about being born again is that, uh, well, Herb Cain, the American journalist, wrote it this way. The trouble with born again Christians is that they are an even bigger pain the second time around. <laughs> Catherine Whitehorn, a British journalist, wrote, why do born again people make you wish they had never been born the first time? There's this idea floating around about the like born again people that that's sort of like a um, a certain branch or a particular breed of Christians. You know, you got your Anglicans and your Reformed and your Baptists, and then you have the homeschooling born again Christians, right? Everybody like that except like the homeschoolers. They're like, that's no, no. And you like that too, right? All right. All right, that, you're like, that was not cool. And usually neither are homeschool kids. But anyways, uh, that's just a joke, just a joke. Okay. It's just low, that's called low-hanging fruit, and you, I have to. I, I, I preach every week, like where else, you have to just take those sometimes. All right. So what does the term actually mean then, right? Like what, what does it mean to be born again? The homeschool families are praying over me right now. May he be born again. He needs regeneration. Okay. He's obviously not saved. Um, this, is what, this is what Peter doesn't say. He doesn't say he has caused some of us to be born again. He says he has caused us to be born again. Who's he talking to? Well, he's talking to suffering Christians like I told you. So what he's saying is the new birth isn't a type of Christianity. The new birth is Christianity. So who's the us? He's caused us to be born again. Well, it's any and every follower of Jesus. It's those who have been born again. We we, we get the concept of being born. You've all been born physically. Well done, everybody. You've been born. To be born again is to be born spiritually. I mean, Jesus talked about this with a man named Nicodemus in John's gospel. He put it this way to Nicodemus. Jesus said, unless someone is born again, they cannot see the kingdom of God. So it means being born to a new kind of life. 
with the spirit of God inside us and his promises sealed for us. So, so hold on to this idea of, of, of being born again as we talk about the three universal problems humanity faces. So let's look at the first, the problem of sin. Peter talks in the next seven verses about salvation three times. He mentions salvation three times in the next seven verses. The, salvation really has to do with deliverance or a rescue, right? To be saved is to receive salvation. And so, so the big question then in our minds would be, well, from what? Salvation from what? And the reality is it's not so much from what's out there as saved from what's in here. In the Bible, salvation is first and foremost being saved from the sin that lurks inside the human heart. Bertrand Russell, a philosopher and secular humanist, an, athe an atheist who really believed meant the human spirit, human ingenuity, like we can solve all the problems. Us banding together, we can do this. Bertrand Russell was, was someone who would trumpet that. And yet he himself wrote, it's in our hearts that e the evil lies. And it's from our hearts that it must be plucked out. Now, Bertrand Russell really thought, we can do this, people. We can do this. We can pluck out evil from the human heart. But he acknowledges the great evil that lies in the world is the evil that lies in every human heart. Well, Albert Einstein, smart guy comes along and says, it's easier to denature plutonium than it is to denature the evil spirit of man. So when, he, when Einstein says it's easier to denature plutonium, I'm like, I, you lost me at denature? Like, I, like, what? Plutonium, huh? How? And that's exactly his point. Bertrand Russell's like, we can do this. We just need to pluck out evil from the human heart. Einstein comes along and says, yeah, it's easier to denature plutonium than do that. Like, this is a problem. You don't have to be religious to acknowledge that there's something deeply wrong with us. Like, that's why road rage is a thing. Like, that's why cops set up speed traps, because eventually even the most saintly, old, godly woman's going to speed down the road and get caught. Eventually, the pastor may drive down the road and get caught in it again. <laughs> like, that's why reading the comments section on YouTube or opinion pieces online is a super depressing exercise. Because evil hasn't been plucked out of the human heart, like every human heart. And that's why the Apostle Paul, another follower of Jesus, who wrote a good portion of the New Testament, and maybe you can relate to what he said in Romans 7 when he said, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Sin is, frankly, simply missing the mark. Sin is transgression or disobedience toward a known law or standard. Sin ultimately is rebellion against God. And no amount of technological advancement has been able to fix it. Second problem, the problem of suffering. 
A few verses after this, this, this born again to a living hope verse I read, a few verses later, Peter says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. He's talking about, man, you're, we're rejoicing right now, but he's also acknowledging, even as we rejoice in Jesus, there's, there's this acknowledgement that, man, we're grieved by various trials. Like the Bible's so real, so honest. Every form of heartache that you and I experience, you can find it in the scriptures. They walked it too. If you're a shallow person like me, um, you will have judged a book by its cover too many times to count. Like what I mean is like you look in at a cute, you know, little family and think, man, their life looks so easy. You look over at somebody, you think, man, their life looks perfect. Their life looks easy. They probably don't struggle. They have no hardship. Ever done that? Anybody shallow like me? Oh man, their life's so easy. I wish I could live in their life and things would be blissful. Things would be simple. Things would be easy. I've learned this over and over again and I need to continue to learn it over and over again is that when I actually um, rub shoulders with, with, with many of the people that I've thought that about, you know, that, that shallow first impression, their life looks easy. So many times I've rubbed shoulders with those people and I've just started to hear a bit of their story. <laughs> and over and over and over again, I realize, man, they've been through loss. They've been through heartbreak. They're often in the midst of hardship. We in the West, we, we, we look at other parts of the world and are shocked at the suffering they experience. I mean, we're in an Easter service in Chilliwack. We're not in an Easter service in Sri Lanka. So we look across the world and go, look at the suffering over there. But you know, we're not all that different. The West suffers right along with the rest of the world, but sometimes in different ways. The sufferings of wealth and consumerism and self-medicating, suffering from the loneliness epidemic and skyrocketing anxiety and depression rates that are defining our time and place. When I was a teenager, my sister had a REM album that we listened to a lot. And I'd like to quote from it right now because it sums up what I'm trying to say about the problem of suffering. You know what it is? Everybody hurts. Everybody hurts. It takes longer for some to experience it than others, but everybody hurts. Sometimes. You know. <laughs> and no amount, no amount of human ingenuity has been able to fix it. Third, the problem of death. With all the world's technological advancement, did you know that everybody still dies? Like everybody. In baseball terms, we're batting a thousand at this in the human experience. My days are numbered, and so are yours. Sure, advancements in medicine have been able to extend life, but it hasn't been able to fix death. So what do you do with that reality that death is coming for you? Anything? Like in the Apostle Peter's time, the median life expectancy was 35 years old. I would have died last year. The child mortality rate was high. They lived with extended families, so when someone was on their deathbed, the family was around and helping. 
And when the loved one passed away, their body lay in the house, sometimes for days. We, on the other hand, are the most removed from death culture there's ever been. The median life expectancy in Canada is 81, and we have a profoundly slick system for sanitizing death. What this can do is keep death off of our minds and let us live in the illusion that it will never come. Now, many of us have have rubbed shoulders with death much more intimately than that. We can't just push it off and pretend it's an illusion that it it will not come. you've, You've faced it with people you love very, very much. But the reality is we need assurance. We need peace. The reality is we need hope, don't we? Hope is a popular word. We hear it a lot. Alberta just had an election, and the Alberta premier-elect in his speech said, help is on the way, and hope is on the horizon. The Notre Dame, Notre Dame fire. Probably saw the images, read some of the articles. CBC entitled an article that posted on Notre Dame, what's been lost, what's been saved, and where there's hope. Hope. In the latest Delicio commercial, um, the narrator says, we're not just stuffing crusts with cheese, we're stuffing them with hope. I don't want a cheese stuffed crust. Is that delivery? Or, so, no, that's, that's DeGer- Okay, never mind. A Jewish man named Viktor Frankl, Viktor Frankl was put in Ger- a German concentration camp during World War II. You may have heard of him. He was a psychiatrist and observed other inmates and their will to live. In his book, Man's Search for Meaning, he tells this story. He observed that newcomers to the camp who were overcome with grief died early on. But those who had some sort of hope to live for survived. One man had a dream that he would be released in a week. And he was certain that it would happen. His morale was high all week. And then the day came and went. And two days later, he died. The point is, hope matters. Because it changes how we view each day. Some sort of hope in the future actually affects our present time. We often say, you know, I I hope that works out for you. Or can you guys come over for dinner? I hope so. And when we say that, we mean maybe. But in the Bible, hope is certain. Because it's grounded in what God has already accomplished for us through Jesus. I don't want cheese-filled crusts. I want to live forever. Uh, A couple months ago, I found out that my mom has terminal cancer. And she just turned 66. 
And so all the feelings of like, oh, gut punch. This isn't right, and, and death isn't right. Sadness for yourself, sadness for the grandkids, sadness about all kinds of elements of the realities of losing your mom. But there's another reality going on in the middle of it all. And that's the reality that my mom has hope. And she is one of the most poised, optimistic, and at-rest people who knows they're dying that I've ever experienced, that I've ever encountered. And that's because she has something even better than hope. She has a living hope. Like she has a hope about her future that's affecting even how she's grieving in the present. Doesn't mean she doesn't grieve. We're human. We're flawed. We're broken. We love and, and, and hard things happen. Like that, that's, that's just real life. We grieve. But, but grieve as those with hope. I mean, this is what, um, this is what it says in First Thessalonians 4 where Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Doesn't mean we don't grieve. But just be reminded, we don't grieve as those who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. What he's saying is, yeah, we grieve, but we grieve as those with a profound hope, a living hope that actually affects now. She has a hope that our text says, verse 4 of 1 Peter 1 says, it's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And that kind of inheritance is a living hope in the sense that my mom and any follower of Jesus who faces terminal illness, that her future hope informs her present mood. And you can't manufacture that through technology. So where are we at? <laughs> Human beings have been able to do a ton of cool stuff, i.e. the head wedgie. But we haven't been able to solve the three universal problems of sin, suffering, and death. So I'd like to leave you with the good news of Easter this morning. The good news of Easter. Later in verse 12 of 1 Peter 1, it says, In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news, this is something that is announced to us. There is not some advice I want to give you or some sort of belief structure that might make you feel good a bit. What the Bible tells us about what I'm about to say is that it's truth, that it's historic, that it happened. It's an announcement and it is really, really, really good news. Just a couple of days ago was Good Friday the day that Jesus died. It was there on the cross that an exchange took place where Jesus, the son of God, voluntarily went to the cross and died there because God so loved the world. And an exchange took place. The exchange that took place on the cross is that we get the credit for everything Jesus has done and he gets the blame for everything we've done. 
That's the meaning of the cross. All your sins, past, present, and future, forgiven. You're washed. You're cleansed. Your sins dealt with on the cross. But that's not the end of it. He's also risen. That's the Easter Sunday message. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the representation of the death of death. Not just for him, but for everyone who's connected to him through faith. The assurance that we will one day be raised with him has already happened in the past when Jesus rose from the grave victorious over death. And so this living hope is the reality that our suffering God, our suffering King Jesus died to pay the penalty for our sins and rose victorious over death from the grave and forgiveness of sins and life everlasting are both ours when we embrace him. Like Viktor Frankl observed, hope about tomorrow matters because it radically changes our perspective today. So just a couple invitations in our concluding minutes. First, Christian, do you live in this hope? Are you living in this hope? Uh, I've... uh, I've been at the bedside of those dying who have no hope. And I've been at the bedside of those dying who have a living hope. And there's actually a different sound to the crying in the room. One is a hopeless wail. And the other is a hope-filled grief. It sounds different. Christian, I want you to live with hope. Death is not the end. Apostle Paul would say, death is the gain. death, Death is the point where it gets better. See, This inheritance, this living hope should govern our present mood. Doesn't mean we don't grieve. Doesn't mean we don't suffer. Doesn't mean we don't cry. Of course, of course, of course. But to the degree that we believe this, we should always feel like we're winning, even when it feels like we're losing. You know what I mean? You know what it feels like to feel like you're losing. The Christian hope is that we're not. We're actually winning. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. I mean that in a, man, my security's in Christ. Jesus did it. Jesus paid it. Jesus rose. One more invitation. Do you have this living hope? I'm telling the Christian, live like it. Live like it. But do you even have it? Do you have this living hope? Are you born again? Would you like to be? You may be wondering, well, what would, that, what would that look like? And how will I know? How, how does that happen? I just want to give you three quick stories, three examples to show how different one's per, one person's conversion, their experience of being born again, can be different from the next. I'll give you three. Uh, Start with Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in London for more, uh, many years in the 20th century. He preached at Westminster Chapel, which was this big church right outside of Buckingham Palace, right in the middle of London. 
And he tells this true story in his preaching lectures. One Sunday night, there was a man so down, he was suicidal. And he was walking through the streets of London on his way to the River Thames to throw himself in. He was going to find a bridge and walk across the bridge and throw himself in. That's where he was at. He was that suicidal. And, and so as he was making his way to that bridge, as he was going along, it was a Sunday night and the Sunday night service at Westminster Chapel, Chapel was happening and the windows were open and he heard the music and it gave him some kind of hope. And he said, I think I'll go in. And so he went in and sat down and heard the word of God preached and he became a Christian. That's pretty dramatic, right? I was on the way to kill myself and then I went by a church and I went in and I heard the word of God and I received it. Like, it's pretty dramatic. However, another story, C. Everett Koop, who died a few years ago, was the Surgeon General of the United States in the 1980s. He was also a brilliant doctor at Children's Hospital in Philadelphia for many years. He wasn't a Christian, but his wife dragged him to the evening service at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where Donald Gray Barhouse was the preacher in the 40s or 50s or so. Some of you are in the exact same place. Someone dragged you here today. And this is what he tells happened to him. He remembers when he began going to hear the preacher in the evening services that his wife dragged him to. When he listened to the sermons, there was almost nothing he heard that he liked. Virtually everything he thought was stupid. He said he didn't believe hardly anything the guy said. He realized, though, about a year and a half later, after continually being dragged by his saintly wife, he believed pretty much everything the guy was saying. He looked back and asked, what happened? And he realized very slowly, very slowly, bit by bit, one argument made sense. Okay, I guess I believe that. Another argument made sense. Well, I guess I believe that. Bit by bit, he came to believe more and more of the Christian faith until he realized about a year and a half later that actually he believed. Like he really believed. He was praying. He had given himself to Christ. But if you would ask him what day or what week or even what month, he couldn't tell you. Somewhere, the new life came in. He was born again. But he couldn't even tell you when. One more example, Ruth Graham, wife of the famous revivalist preacher, Billy Graham. Of course, the master of the dramatic come-to-Jesus born-again experience. But Ruth's story is much like what C. Everett Coop experienced only as a little child. She found as she grew up, she heard the stories about Jesus, and at age three, at the age of five, at the age of eight, every time she could understand a little bit more. Because she had gotten older, what she understood, she embraced bit by bit. So somewhere, I don't know, at 12 or 14 years old or something like that, she realized, I profess faith. So she believed it. But she could never remember when she didn't believe it. Yet on the other hand, she could remember when she didn't get it. But at some point, bit by bit, it grew together. Therefore, she never really could remember a time in which she didn't believe and she experienced a new birth. Yeah, well, when? What year did it happen? At age five? Age eight? When did it happen? She doesn't know, but she experienced a new life. Are you born again? And maybe you look back years as I tell those stories and connect to one of them. Or maybe you're realizing that your story is in process 
right now. Or maybe even this Easter is your born again story. Are you born again? Like, I don't mean, do you watch terrible movies? Do you vote for one political party all the time? Are you anti-science and are you the lame person at parties? That's not what I'm asking when I say, are you born again? Here's what I'm asking when I say, are you born again? I mean, do you believe that Jesus solves these three universal problems of humanity and have you trusted him in faith? I get that there's a terrifying leap from believing in Jesus to living as a Christian, and it's a little bit freaky, right? Like, I don't know if I want to be like that. Don't worry about that this morning. Here's what the Bible says about that. Believe in Jesus. The cross happened so you could bring your sins, your wrongdoing, your transgressions against God to the cross, and you could be cleansed. You can invite him into your life, and you can pursue him and he will sort everything else out. Simply believe the good news, believe it, and trust him to address your sin, your suffering, and inevitable death. And as you trust him and pursue him, you will grow and you will change and you will be transformed and you will look back and say, wait a minute, I have this living, indestructible hope in me. And it's rooted in Jesus, the God-man who died and rose for me. Thank you, Jesus. Let's pray. That is, that is it, Lord. We, we are just overcome as, as we dwell on all you've done for us. Great technological advancements have, have happened in human history, and yet there are these deep-rooted problems we ourselves have no answer for. And you knew that. You know that. So, Jesus, you came. You lived a spotless life. You died a a criminal's death, though you were spotless. And that exchange happened of your record for our record, our record for your record. What an incredible thing. And today is the day of days that we celebrate that the tomb is empty and death was done away with. And the outcome for us will be the outcome for you when that grave was empty and you had risen. Lord, I just pray, help us afresh, rest our hope in you. And Jesus, I pray for my friends here this morning who are just for the first time settling, resting their hope in you. I give you praise for that, Jesus. We love you. We thank you. We celebrate you this Easter. In Jesus' name, amen.